So I invite you to turn your attention now, please, to Matthew chapter number 3, and that is the passage uh, from which our scripture reading was delivered, Matthew chapter 3, and it is uh, famous when you think of Matthew 3 for the baptism of the Lord Jesus, and yet in the verses that were delivered for us, verses 16 and 17, we find not only facts about Jesus' baptism, but we find information about the nature and character, the, an attribute of God. We find in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, a triune God. Uh, look with me at verse number 16. The Bible says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. So there is the God-man. There is God robed in flesh. That is Jesus. And he is the one, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened. And listen to this. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So there is the Holy Spirit enlightening upon him. And listen to this, verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the voice of the Heavenly Father. In the uh, Gospel account here, Matthew chapter 3, we see a triune God. We see God the Father saying of His Son that He is well pleased. We see the Spirit of God descending uh, like a dove. And we see the Son of God being baptized. The doctrine of the Trinity is really replete through the 1,189 chapters, the 66 books of the completed canon of Scripture. Now, some of you already have that look on your face. <laughs> you know, that, that glazed-over look like, is he really about to talk to us about the Trinity? Is he, for the next 30, 35, 40, 55, who knows, minutes, going to talk to us about such a heavy doctrine. And indeed, it is a heavy doctrine. Uh, one individual said this. It was Augustine who said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. And if you try to explain the Trinity, you could lose your mind. It is a complex topic. One described it as unfathomable when referring to the Trinity. Uh, it was Jonathan Edwards. You know Jonathan Edwards, the preacher who famously preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, the human instrument by which God delivered revival as he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards said this concerning the Trinity. It is the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. So somebody says, Pastor Johnson, are you really about to preach to us a concept by which you could potentially lose your mind or is described as unfathomable or one of the divine mysteries. Uh, it is something that is far beyond, beyond human comprehension. Yes, I am about to try to do that. Um, and, 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 and a major reason for this is I feel that many in churches like ours, you know, we would be an independent fundamental Baptist church, have prioritized from their pulpits what we would call secondary issues. While they certainly need to be considered, they're not the primary issues. Many independent Baptist church, churches are known for the secondary issues, and, and what is happening is the, the primary issues are not being taught from many of our pulpits, and as a result, many of our people uh, are, are unable to defend their faith. I'm saying secondary issues. A lot of our churches are known for uh, their position when it comes to pants on women. 
or their position when it comes to the text debate. And, and please understand, these are secondary issues, and the Trinity is a primary issue. Uh, and don't misunderstand either the uh, text debate. Uh, again, that's a secondary issue, but the primary issue in that debate is inspiration and preservation and canonicity and, and understanding those things. But a person can use the wrong version of the Bible and still be saved. I got saved in 1988. My mom didn't know any better. She took a Bible. It was called The Way. So it wasn't even an ESV or an NIV. It was like a transliteration. And in the transliteration is the gospel. I mean, she told me that I was a sinner and that I needed a savior. And, and I called upon Jesus and Jesus alone, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to save me. I'm saying there are people that are using, in, in my opinion, as a secondary issue, maybe the wrong version but they're still going to heaven. And, and we have made money, and, and women can have different dress standards than you might have and still go to heaven. We have become known for being dogmatic about secondary issues instead of equipping the saints of God concerning the primary issues. And let me say this, to reject the Trinity is to be eternally damned. To be wrong on issues of modesty or, or uh, to be different than some of us on the text issue, those are secondary issues, important issues, yes. I, I, and somebody says, oh, you're, you're minimizing some important concepts. Well, I'm really just trying to maximize the most important concepts. The deity of Jesus Christ is the primary message of the entire Bible. The Old Testament points to the coming Messiah over and over and over and over again. And the New Testament reveals that the Messiah has come. And then, after you read through the Gospels, the implications in Acts and all of Paul's letters are revealed. The implications of the Messiah who has come. For us not to be able to explain why we believe in the deity is to miss the major message of the Bible. And I think many people are far more dogmatic about secondary issues which need to be considered and you need to understand and you need to have a Bible-based position on those things. But we ought not be far more dogmatic on the secondary issues than we are on the primary issues. I heard a story this week and I've shared it with a couple of you just in discussion about an individual who as an atheist, an unbeliever, doesn't even believe that God exists, who went to some uh, churchgoers and the atheist said, will you take your Bible, your, the atheist says, so-called sacred book, and show me from that Bible why you believe Jesus is God and that Muhammad is not God and that you know, Allah is not God. The prophet Muhammad and, and Allah, their God, not God. And why uh, you reject uh, Buddha and, and on and on. Why you reject the false gods. Show me from your so-called sacred book, book statements of deity. And the conclusion was that most Christians, off the top of their head, cannot take their sword and prove the central message of the entire Bible with I mean, if, if I invited you to just take out a pen and a paper and just quickly jot down as many references that you can that explain deity, I think we'd feel put on the spot and uncomfortable. And, and yet, people will leave a church over secondary issues. 
And yet we fail in large part as American Christians in articulating the most central issue of the Word of God. And, and we would say, well, yes, I believe that Jesus is God and I've trusted my soul to Him because my mama taught me that or because the pastor taught me that or because that's the kind of church that I grew up in. And it's, as long as she believed it and, and he preached it, then, then that's just good enough for me. I'm saying that ought not be good enough for you. So, so yes, I'm about to preach on a a primary issue, a central issue that might be deemed as, as boring and it might not invoke a whole lot of amens, but, but would you focus on a majestic God, a triune God, a powerful God, so that you are ready, as First Peter says, to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. A triune God, it is this idea, he is one being, and yet, three persons eternally equal in every way. One being, yet three persons eternally equal in every way. So the Pine Forest Estates Baptist Church statement of faith reads this way. I think it's terrific. It says, quote, We believe in one triune God. And the emphasis on the word one there. Um, is the idea that we believe in monotheism. So we believe in one God, one deity. We reject polytheism, the idea of many gods. So the statement of faith says, we believe in one triune God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each co-eternal in being, co-identical in nature, co-equal in power and glory, and having the same attributes and perfections. And I end the quote there from our statement of faith. So, so do you believe that? If you do, would you say amen? And then the next concept is, can we defend that? And over the next few moments, I want to equip God's people so that we feel like we individually can defend that from the Word of God. And, and before we get into the defense of our faith so that we're able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, I want to identify some heresies that are very common in in American so-called Christianity. Identify some major heresies. Uh, because a lot of people wouldn't have said amen to what I just read. Because they subscribe to some, some other philosophies. So major heresies that contradict the Trinity, one of them I've already alluded to, is polytheism. It's the idea that, that there, there can be many gods or tritheism, and that is that we serve three gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as if they're three separate gods. And we would reject that as heretical, as an error, for that is basically what Mormons teach. Mormons say that there are multiple gods, and they teach that, listen to this, Jesus was a man who became God, not what we would identify with, which is that God became man. Mormonism says that there are multiple gods and that men and women have the opportunity to become a god. And that's what they said about Jesus, that, that he was a man who became God. And, and let me just be very clear that Jesus was not a man who became God. He is God who became man. He is, <clears throat> excuse me, the God-man. So that concept of polytheism is, is heretical in every way. 
Not only that heresy, but the United Pentecostal Church teaches what's called modalism. Uh, and one of the famous leaders of this United Pentecostal Church is the Reverend T.D. Jakes. And T.D. Jakes is often interviewed on major news networks as some type of religious expert. And if you've seen the TV preacher T.D. Jakes, you might find him engaging and very entertaining. His audience certainly does. They are fully engaged in his stories and his rhetoric and his uh, religious ideologies. And yet, this United Pentecostal Church teaches what's called modalism. It is a heretical concept that is against the, the biblical form of the Trinity. It is also known as oneness uh, or Jesus only. And I had never run into this until about a year ago. Uh, some folks in Muncie, Indiana, uh, at a church up the road, uh, were, were asking me questions <clears throat> about uh, religious things, and they were identifying themselves with the Pentecostal church up the road, and they were asking me uh, if I identify with the Jesus-only concept, and I didn't understand it. It was something I had to, to study, and they used the term oneness. And as I looked into it more, I identified that the overarching term for this concept is, is modalism. And the idea is that, that Jesus, so that there, one of their terms is Jesus-only, that there's really only one God, we believe that part, but that, that, that it's only Jesus... And that Jesus puts on different masks as you read through Scripture. So the idea is that in the Old Testament, uh, Jesus puts on the mask of the Father. And during the life of uh, the Son of God, we see him as Jesus. And then uh, when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and we read throughout the rest of the New Testament and into our dispensation of the grace of God, that Jesus has now put on the mask of the Holy Spirit. It's different modes. That's why they call it modalism. It is an error to deny that, listen, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit uh, are not three distinct persons. They indeed are three distinct persons. We serve one God, one being, who is a triune being with three distinct persons. And it's not, it's not the idea of personhood in that I have three sons who are three individual Persons, but it is the idea that they do things that represent a personality. So they are three distinct persons. It is not that they're just quick changing, uh, in, that, it's, that it's Jesus and then Jesus becomes the Father and then, and then Jesus becomes the Holy Spirit. That is an error. That is heretical. And that's the idea of the Jesus-only concept, the modalism, the oneness concept. The idea that sometimes he pretends that he's the Father, sometimes he pretends he's the Holy Spirit. That is heretical. So not only polytheism, not only modalism, but what they call Arianism. Arianism is another heresy that masquerades as a Trinitarian belief. And Arianism is a very, very old concept, and yet it is still very prevalent even in American religious circles, and it is the idea of, uh, and, and let me read you a definition here that I, that I got for you. It says, an in, influential heresy denying, listen to this, the divinity of Christ. Arianism maintains that the Son of God was created by the Father and was therefore neither co-eternal with the Father nor co-substantial. So the idea that God the Father created the Son, that is 
heresy. And by the way, that is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that God the Father created the Son. And, and, and many Muslims who follow the Islamic faith also believe that. They are denying that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all eternal and that they're all equally eternal. Jesus has always been. If you believe that, would you say amen? And so has the Holy Spirit, and so has God the Father. So Arianism is heretical. And so these three major heresies that I've identified endeavor to distort the triune God. And, and again, several Sunday mornings ago, uh, over the last several Sunday mornings, we have studied the character, the nature, the attributes of God. And to leave this one out because of its daunting nature, again, it's unfathomable. I mean, to leave it out would be to leave this study incomplete. People say, well, Pastor, boy, I, I benefited from uh, the fact that God is love and that God is holy and, and I even understood that God is wrath and that God is everywhere and that God is all-powerful. But, but again, this is an unfathomable thing. I mean, we are, listen, we are finite beings, so we're limited. And he is an infinite being. He is unlimited. And yet it is a theme throughout Scripture. So now I want to give you Trinitarian statements, three of them, and I want to undergird them with Scripture, and I want us to be, as a result, better defenders of our faith. We need to study this so that we don't leave our study on the character of God incomplete. The first Trinitarian statement is this, and that is, and I've already alluded to this, but I want to unpack it, if you will, and that is that God is three persons. God is three persons. So this is the first of three statements that I want you to understand. And we know this statement is true, that God is three persons, in part because the Scripture talks about God with plural pronouns. Plural pronouns. And I love that. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's majestic to read at creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26, the Bible says, and God said, God, singular in the, in the sense of, of monotheism, one God. And God said, let us, it refers to the three persons, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is three persons. You read at the Tower of Babel. Some of you pronounce it Babel. I don't know how to pronounce it, but the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verse number 7. The Bible says, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Again, we're seeing plural pronouns in reference to the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. You find that same concept in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 8. I've preached a couple times already from Isaiah chapter 6, and I love the book of Isaiah during the uh, time of question and answer with Brother Herb on the platform and, and myself. I was asked, uh, maybe my favorite book of the Bible, and I forget exactly the question, but, but I love Isaiah. And in Isaiah 6, 8, here's what you find. The Bible says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? A plural pronoun. And remember Isaiah's famous response, Then said I, Here am I, send me. It's as if Isaiah heard the Trinity. The voice of the Lord, the one God, monotheism, said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The three persons. God is three persons, and Isaiah, as one individual, said, here am I, 
send me. Isaiah hearing, if you will, the Trinity. God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are persons. And somebody says, Pastor Johnson, the Spirit? The Spirit has a personality? I say, yes. The Scripture, the scripture teaches us that. You find that in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15, in reference to the Holy Spirit, uh, when you consider the original language, the Greek, you don't find uh, neuter or neutral pronouns being used. You find a masculine pronoun in reference to the Holy Spirit. By the way, I think the kids at the wild, some of the junior campers were asked this week to memorize John chapter 16, verses 7 through 14. Right, Matt? Matt is very nervous right now that I'm about to call him up in front of everybody and have him quote that. But he quoted it last night beautifully for us. And I was listening as he was quoting to all of those, those personal pronouns uh, that refer to the Holy Spirit as he. Uh, the Holy Spirit as a person. Um, you find that the Holy Spirit has a, a personality. He, te he teaches, the Holy Spirit does. He testifies, he intercedes. The Holy Spirit knows and he searches and he speaks. Remember in Acts chapter 8 when he told Philip? You know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the evangelist Philip? He told Philip to go to the chariot and basically to stay near the chariot as the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53 and he says, how can I understand except some man guide me? And that man was Philip and the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip. And the Holy Spirit teaches and testifies and intercedes and the Holy Spirit knows. And these attributes of the Spirit speak to his personhood, his personality, if you will. So all, and all persons are distinct. Um, here in our passage of Scripture, the baptism of the Lord Jesus, we see that they're distinct one from another. So it is the Holy Spirit that descends like a dove. It is the God-man, the Lord Jesus, that is being baptized. And it is the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So they are all persons and they are all distinct one from another. So some of the most famous verses in Scripture, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, is known as the Great Commission. And it is in those verses where we find that we are to go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, the name, so it's, it's, it's monotheism, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's three persons. So God is three persons. I think I've sufficiently made the case for that. I hope so. And if I have, I'm going to move on to the next Trinitarian statement. So how many of you think I made the point? Would you say amen? Okay, good. Okay. Uh, thought number two, statement number two. Each person is fully God. So God is three persons. The second concept is that each person is fully God. So God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. And God the Holy Spirit is fully God. And I, and I mentioned earlier the idea of us being able to prove these concepts. There's really no debate, and there never has been debate, that God the Father is fully God. But there has been and is a lot of debate about, is, is Jesus really fully God? And, and again, I mentioned earlier, can you prove it? The atheist says to you, or some unbeliever says to you, I will be a believer if you can take your sacred book and show me that Jesus is God. Statements of deity. <clears throat> when I first got to 
Pine Forest Estates Baptist Church, I had conversations with Brother Henderson, and he and I talked about John's gospel, and he, of course, is one of our adult Sunday school teachers, and talking about the several I am statements, that would be a good place to go, trying to, to prove that Jesus is God. It is, again, the central issue of the entire Bible. I think the paramount passage in Scripture, maybe John's gospel would be the paramount book that, that endeavors to showcase that Jesus is God, but maybe the, the paramount passage in Paul's writings is Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse number 5 through 11. Look there with me, if you would, uh, in the Word of God. Turn, please, to Philippians chapter 2. So God the Father is fully God, and so the question is, is God the Son? One of the persons of this divine being, is he, is he fully God? Philippians chapter 2, look with me uh, at verse number 5. So if somebody asks you, prove to me that Jesus is God, here's a great place to go. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The idea of Christ is the idea of the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the one that is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is, he is Christ Jesus, so that is who, verses 6 and following, is speaking of. It opens with the word who in verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So this is saying that Jesus is God. Verse number 7, though, explains that he, is, he was also man. The Bible says in verse number 7, but made himself of no reputation and took, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So he was 100% God, verse number 6 tells us that, verse number 7 tells us, yet 100% man made himself in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This speaks again of his humanity. Notice verse number 9, the Bible says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So verse 6 tells us he's God, verse 7 tells us he was also man, and verse 11 tells us that he is Lord. Uh, verse number 9 tells us he is Savior. Uh, these, are, these are indications concerning deity. My life verses, um, and I've preached from them before, Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 11, 12, and 13. You find in Titus chapter 2, verse number 13, the idea of looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, Jesus is the great God and Savior. And understand that in our pluralistic America, Exclusivity is a biblical concept. Neither is there salvation in any other. So yes, we live in a pluralistic religious society, but there's really only one way to heaven. Acts chapter 4 says, neither is there salvation in any other. Our passage in Philippians chapter 2, where we are considering right now, presents an exclusive redeemer. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. So he is deity. He is, he is God. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another statement of deity you could maybe reference is John chapter 20, verse number 28. Remember Thomas, who beheld Jesus after he'd already been crucified, 
during that, that 40-day period where he showed himself with many infallible proofs. And he said, when he sees Jesus, Thomas confesses with his mouth, my Lord and my God. Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just an important figure in history. He wasn't just a, an intellectual, a deep thinker, a man with uh, sage quips and quotes that are full of wisdom. He was far more than that. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's deity. So Jesus has a personality. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. God the Father, fully God. Jesus, fully God. And the Holy Spirit, fully God. So, so somebody says to you, well, prove that. Prove that. I would go to Acts chapter 5. Some of you in Sunday school have studied that just recently. Our Sunday school curriculum is covering the book of Acts. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? What did the, the man of God, Peter, say? to Ananias and Sapphira? He said that you have lied to the Holy Ghost. They held back a portion. They pledged to give, to sell some property and to give that money uh, for the, the sake of the cause of Christ, and yet they, they lied. They said that they were giving it all, and they did not give it all. And so uh, Peter says to them, you have lied to the Holy Ghost. In verse number 4 of that passage, the Bible says that thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Acts chapter 5 equates the Holy Ghost with God. It's okay to, to pray to the Holy Ghost and to love and worship the Holy Ghost. It is okay to adore the Lord Jesus and to adore and pray to uh, and in the name of uh, the Father. For he is one being yet with three persons and, and each person is fully God. Okay, so statement number one, Trinitarian statement number one, was that God is three persons. The second statement, each person is fully God. The third statement, and lastly, is that there is one God. And I, again, I've alluded to this, but I want to unpack it just briefly. So God is three persons, each person is fully God, and yet there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 famously says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isaiah chapter 45, verse number 5, the Bible says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside thee. Monotheism. Only one God. One God cover to cover in Scripture. Not many gods. Not tritheism. But one God, cover to cover. God is three persons. Each is fully God. There is one God. One being with three persons. And often, Bible believers, when they explain the Trinity, will use the little phrase that he is one in three. And that is a good way to describe the Trinity. He is one being with three persons. And, and again, I want to undergird the concept that that each person of this one being is eternal, eternal. God the Father has always been and always will be God. God the Son has always been and always will be God. God the Holy Spirit has always been and always will be God. So the Trinity is eternal. Another thing just to note before we conclude is that the three persons of the Trinity have had different functions. And, and that's where people get really confused. 
they look at the different functions in Scripture of the Holy Spirit versus the God-man, the Lord Jesus, and, and the God, God the Father's role in, in, in creation and in redemption, and they get kind of perplexed. And, and that's why some people land their theological plane, if you will, with the idea of, of, of three different gods. Because they, they see the different functions in Scripture, and it confuses them. And so we want to offer you some clarity in that area. They function in different ways at different times, but that doesn't mean that in their essence they are different. That doesn't undermine their divine nature in any way. Just because they function in different ways does not attack the Godhead. At times the Son is functionally subordinate to the Father. Remember? At the Garden of Gethsemane and in other places in Scripture where Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. He is functionally subordinate in his humanity in that moment, but that does not mean that at any point that he ceased from being God. You find Jesus being led by the Spirit in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 1. The same story is also recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, verse number 1, where Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted. He is functionally dependent on the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that he is less than God. So, as we undergird this concept even more, consider creation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were functionally different. We're exercising their personality, if you will, during creation. God the Father was speaking when it comes to creation. God the Son was implementing, and you find that taught in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. And God the Spirit is hovering above the waters. Functionally different, and yet God all at the same time. Consider salvation. Salvation, functionally different. God the Father planned the redemptive plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So God the Father planned and God the Son obeyed, functionally different. It, it was the Son who died on the cross. The Father didn't come and die on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. God the Spirit is the one who applies, if you will, Ephesians teaches, applies salvation to our lives. So they are equal in their attributes, equal in their essence. Not one person of the Trinity is inferior in their essence in any way. But functionally, their personhood is exercised differently while being God all at the same time. So I conclude with some questions, and, and hopefully because of this study, you can answer these questions in your heart and answer them correctly. So is the doctrine of the Trinity a crucial issue even at the cost of Christian unity? The answer to that question is yes. It is a crucial issue even at the cost of, of Christian unity. It is. Another question, will a person go to heaven who openly rejects belief in the Trinity? Will they go to heaven? And they say, I reject the concept of a triune God? The answer is no, they won't go to heaven. They openly reject the Trinity. And please understand, there's a difference between not, not knowing and openly rejecting. I was saved as a nine-year-old boy. I, I couldn't have explained the Trinity. But I wasn't standing in opposition to it either. 
People, though, that stand in opposition to it, openly rejecting the idea of, of the virgin birth, uh, the uh, vicarious atonement, the, the trinity, uh, the de- I mean, any of these major priorities of Scripture, they're openly rejecting them and renouncing them. They are holding to, to damnable heresies. Will a person go to heaven who openly rejects belief in the trinity? The answer is no, they won't. Another question. Should the Trinity be treated as something upon which good people differ, or is it something to be dogmatic about? And I say it is something to be dogmatic about. One theologian said this way, he said, the Bible teaches that the Trinity is inherent to gospel understanding. Literally, your soul, your, the eternal destination of our soul, hangs in the balance. If we openly reject the Trinity, we are in trouble with God for what we're doing, essentially, if we openly reject the Trinity, is we are creating our own being. Because the Bible tells us in the Old and the New Testaments that we have a triune God. If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you don't believe in the true God and the the true Christ, the, the true Holy Spirit. The triune God is a part of the nature, the character, the attributes of God. If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you don't understand who God is. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6. We know Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. In the middle of the faith chapter, verse number 6 there, the writer of Hebrews says, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The idea is you have to believe that God is who he says he is. Denying the Trinity is to deny Christ and to deny the Holy Spirit. People who deny the Trinity have created a God that does not exist. So does it mean that people who who deny the Trinity are, are going to hell? I believe the scripture teaches us that that is what it means. Knowing the true God is essential to salvation. It is essential to eternal life. It is essential to residency in heaven. Anything less than believing in a triune God is to believe in a being of your own creation, is the way one theologian said. So to believe in polytheism, like the Mormons do, or modalism, like the United Pentecostals do, or Arianism, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims do, is to believe in damnable heresy. And that is why it is so important that we remember what we studied last Sunday morning, that God is an inviting God. And all of those people, literally millions of people, that are caught up in heretical, damnable doctrines need God's people who know the truth of the Word of God to to communicate the love of God. We need to invite people to Christ. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christian person, if this was just one grand review for you this morning, then rejoice in the truth of the Word of God. And then preach that truth to a lost and dying world all around you. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian person. You, you don't know that you're saved. Hey, let me say this. Listen, there is a Savior who loves you. 
who died on the cross for you, who, who has paid the price for your sin, you have two choices. You will either reject him or you will accept him. And if you're not sure that you've ever accepted him, today is the day. There are only two types of people really in this room. Certainly different financial statuses are represented, intellectual levels are represented, uh, ethnic backgrounds are represented, and yet there's really only two types of people, saved and unsaved. Headed for heaven and headed for hell. If you're not sure you're saved, would you trust Christ today? And if you are saved, would you preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? And listen, dedicate your life to the declaration of that message, the ministry of reconciliation, what Paul calls it to the church at Corinth. Would you bow with me, please, for prayer?